Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Jason Averill. I'm the assistant pastor here at Grace. And it is such a pleasure to see you all this morning. I say that every week because it really is one of my favorite times of week. Actually, the favorite time of week for me is just to get to worship with God's people. This is the day that I cherish every week. The day that I wouldn't trade every week. Because it's here that we meet with our Lord and we bind together as a family and we worship Him. And that is amazing. So thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. Thank you so much. So we've been in a sermon series this, uh, this fall entitled, Who is Jesus? And we've really been pressing in on that question every week. And last week we actually heard from Pastor Wilson about Jesus as the manna from heaven, as he fed the 5,000. And today, we're actually going to be diving in more specifically about that question of who is Jesus. We're going to be confronted with that straight from the text. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, Lord, some of us here come here today with great, great joy. Great joy to be able to worship. Great joy to be with your family and with you. Some of us, Lord, come with fear and trepidation because we know our sin and we feel the pollution of it and we don't like to be in your presence because of it. Lord, some of us come here today just out of a sense of duty. We haven't felt that longing for you in in a long, long time. But Lord, we know, this scripture tells us that the reason that we come here, the ultimate reason is because you have called us. You have called us here to worship you as a family. Lord, as we turn to worship you this morning, I do ask that you be with me as I preach the word, keep me from preaching anything that might be a stumbling block to somebody. Lord, Lord, we also ask that you be active. That you be active here and that you direct our eyes and our hearts to our great Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, so like I said, I'm... I'm sorry if I sound a little bit hoarse. I am getting over a cold. So hopefully, my voice actually holds out. You know, here's hoping. So, like I said, you know, we're moving into that text in Scripture, in Matthew, that really looks at that question, who do you say that I am? That comes from Matthew chapter 16. Well, last time, we were actually in Matthew 14. And so we've skipped a little bit. So let's kind of catch up to where we are in the text. So after the feeding of the 5,000, we actually have several kind of monumentous things. And one of the things that we have right after it is that Jesus goes up onto a mountain to pray. And as he goes up to pray, he sends the disciples off across a lake. And of course, they can't get across the lake. And they've been trying all night. And then he walks across the water to the boat And they bow down and they worship him there. And then we see that he has more conflicts with the scribes and Pharisees. 
that he really starts poking that hornet's nest again and again so that they start getting really agitated and start planning to kill him. And he heals many, many people. And then right before this text, we have the feeding of the 4,000. It's a, it's a duplication of that feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does it again. And, you know, the, the disciples aren't quite so unbelieving at this point, which is great. You know, they've learned. And so we come here now into this text, Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus, after his last conflict with the Pharisees, he's withdrawn again, and he goes north. He goes out of the region of Galilee, about 25 miles to the north. And he approaches this city, the city Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, um, it wasn't the only Caesarea here in, uh, in the region. It was actually a city uh, for a, a lo- it had a long history to it. But when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split between his sons. And his son Philip took over this northern region. And when he took over the northern region, he really wanted to pay tribute to Caesar. And so he took this town that had been this place of pagan worship for a long, long time. There were at least 12 temples to pagan gods all throughout the city. There was even a a grotto in a hill that was dedicated to the worship of Pan. And he took this city and he renamed it. He renamed it after Caesar to pay tribute. And then he built this huge temple out of white marble to worship the emperor. Now, context is always key. You know, we always rely upon context. But context here is actually really, really important because it's in this backdrop that we enter the gospel again. This backdrop where Jesus has led his disciples out and they are looking at this city filled with pagan temples and the biggest temple of all is the temple to the emperor. And we hear Jesus ask two important questions. He says, who do the people say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? And with those two questions, let's read our scripture passage this morning. Please stand as we read. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew 16. It is starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
Thus far, the reading of God's Word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's Word stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So who is Jesus? That's the question of this sermon series, and that's the question that we'll be striving to answer today from the text. Who is Jesus? And we're going to do that today by looking at three things. We're going to look at who the people say Jesus is. We're going to be looking at who the disciples say Jesus is. And finally, we're going to be looking at who Jesus says that he is. So who the people says that, say that he is, who the disciples say that he is, who Jesus says that he is. So, right off, who do the people say uh, that Jesus is? We read again in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What an odd way to phrase it. You know, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Not who do the people say I am, but who do the people say the Son of Man is? It's kind of an odd way to phrase it. Why would Jesus ask it this way? You know, in Scripture, we actually see the use of the Son of Man throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus frequently takes this title upon himself in the Gospels, that he is the Son of Man. That's how he refers to himself many times. Now, there are two meanings about the Son of Man in the Old Testament. The first meaning that we see is just a general, a general term that meant Man. It was a it was, <clears throat> sorry. It was a little bit poetic. We see it a lot in the Psalms. We see it in Ezekiel. Who is the Son of Man that you are mindful of him? We see Ezekiel being called the Son of Man by an angel. But there's another way that we actually see it. We see it in Daniel as the title of the coming Messiah. That the Son of Man could be just a way of referring to yourself in a poetic way. Or the Son of Man could be this messianic title. And there's an ambiguity there. And Jesus embraces that ambiguity because he wants people to make the decision. He wants people to make the decision of who they think he is. That's why he's using this here. And the disciples, though, whenever they heard him, they understood him. They understood that he was talking about himself. And they answered accordingly. They said, who is... <clears throat> they said, who do the people say that you are, Jesus? Well, the first answer that they give is John the Baptist. And again, that seems weird. You know, people knew John the Baptist. People had seen John the Baptist baptize Jesus He'd, they had seen them walk together. And yet, for some reason, some people were going around saying that Jesus was now John the Baptist. It seems weird. So, how could anyone think that? Well, if we go back to Matthew chapter 14, right at the beginning, verse 1, we see at the time that Herod the Tetrarch, that's Philip's brother, heard about the fame of Jesus, he said to his servants, 
This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. Now, it goes on to say in the text that Herod actually wanted to kill John the Baptist for a long time, but he feared the people. And so, because of his fear, he actually was ultimately tricked into killing John the Baptist. Because he wouldn't do it because of his fear. But now, he hears about Jesus. And he hears that Jesus is going about and he has this conflict with the Pharisees, the same as John did. And he also has all of these miracles that he's performing. And he starts thinking, hey, maybe this might be a way to assuage you know, the, the consternation of the people, the people who really didn't like it that I beheaded John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Jesus. He throws that guilt away from him in doing that. And the next thing that they say is that maybe he's Elijah because, you know, Elijah was a miracle worker in Scripture, very much performing some of the miracles that that Jesus performed. He was very powerful. In fact, whenever, you know, if you think about our day and age, whenever you see, you know, little boys and they argue about superheroes, okay, and one might say that, you know, Superman is the best superhero, and the other might say, no, Iron Man is the best superhero. Well, little Hebrew boys would have those same arguments, but they would have it about two other people, Moses and Elijah. Who was, sorry, who was better? Who was greater, Moses or Elijah? Because Moses performs the miracle of parting the Red Sea, and Elijah you know, he performed many other miracles, even raised somebody from the dead. So, he might be Elijah. Of course, that's also strange because Jesus, in the midst of all crowds a little while ago, specifically called John the Baptist Elijah to come. And so, he, it's kind of weird that people would hone in on that after he had specifically taught against it. The next is Jeremiah or some of the other prophets. You know, Jeremiah, if you remember his story at all, he was called the weeping prophet. And his whole job was to confront the nobles and the priests and to call them to repentance. And he was the weeping prophet because the sad thing was is that he would call and call and call and call and they would never repent. And Jesus and his call for people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's following after, in some respects, Jeremiah. Now, the disciples actually leave out one of the other ways that people were, were referring to Jesus at this time, something that we actually see in a previous chapter. You know, The Pharisees and scribes didn't think that Jesus was John the Baptist and they didn't think that he was Elijah and they didn't think that he was Jeremiah or a prophet. No, in fact, they thought that he was in league with Satan. They thought he was possessed by a demon, that he was casting out demons by the power of of the prince of demons. That's how they viewed him. And those are the answers that the disciples give about who the people think Jesus is. And you see, there's a lot of commonality. 
There's a lot of commonality with those answers and the answers that we get today from people outside the church. If you ask that question, who is Jesus, to somebody outside the church, you're going to get, well, I don't know. Maybe he's a, he's a great teacher, a great moral teacher. Yeah, that's who Jesus is. He's not the Son of Man. He's not the Son of God. No, He's not the Messiah, but He was a good moral teacher. You might even hear somebody say, well, He was a great prophet. This is, you know, if you go to a Muslim and you ask them anything about Jesus, they'll be quick to point out that Jesus is actually in the Quran and that He is a great prophet. In fact, they might even say that He's the greatest prophet next to Muhammad. And yet, He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Son of Man. And still others will say that he's a liar. They'll say he was crazy. Some people will even say that he's completely fictional. That Jesus himself is fictional. And all of, these, all of these arguments actually rest on one particular premise. And that premise is the fact that Scripture isn't trustworthy. That the scriptural evidence is faulty. That's where all of those arguments go back to. But those are the arguments that you still hear from people without, from outside the church. Jesus is a teacher. Prophet, maybe. He's not the Son of God. So let's turn to Jesus' next question to the disciples. Starting in verse 15. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, who do you say that I am? That's his next question to the disciples. And he asks all the disciples that. And he changes it up this time. And he doesn't say, who do you say the Son of Man is? No, who do you say I am? And Peter, the spokesman of the group, he pipes up like he often does because he's the leader. He's the leader of this ragtag bunch of disciples. And he says this magnificent profession of faith that's just so iconic. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. What an awesome profession is that? That's an amazing profession of faith. It's one statement with two parts. And it encapsulates the entirety of the gospel right there. Everything that is in the gospel is right there. What do I mean? Let's look at the two parts of that profession. He says, you are the Christ. Who is the Christ? Well, the Greek word for Christ is actually the anointed one. Sometimes it's translated as king because kings were anointed. Kings weren't the only people that were anointed in the Old Testament, though. We also have uh, the high priests were anointed for their duty in the Old Testament. We have some of the prophets were anointed for their duties. We see three offices, three types of people that were anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. And it's interesting, though, that he says, 
that you are the Christ, you are the anointed one. Because he's, he's honing down on a specific figure. Who is he talking about? Well, the entirety of the Old Testament actually goes into answering that question. If we start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the fall of man has just happened. People have sinned. And during the curse on the snake, God actually gives this first gospel, this pronouncement that there's a coming Savior. There's somebody coming who is going to put the snake to death. He's going to crush him underfoot. And he is going to right this wrong. He's going to triumph over evil. And then the rest of the Bible is showing forth who that person is. And we see in Moses, him foretelling that the coming one is going to be a great prophet like him, who actually sees God face to face. Though we know that Moses saw God face to face with a veil between them. But the coming prophet would be greater than Moses. We see in David... 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this great covenant made with David where God says that the coming one, the coming one is going to be of your line and he's going to be a king. He's going to be a king and his, the government will not pass from him. He will establish an eternal kingdom. And then we see in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in many of the prophets that the coming one would be a priest. The psalm said that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And not only, not only a priest, but he would be a high priest. A high priest like Joshua. A high priest like Aaron. And so, this is the anointed one that they're talking about. It's that Jesus as the Christ is the coming Savior, the one who is going to save his people, the one who's finally going to put everything to right, to start rolling back the curse by taking the curse on himself. That is what it means that he's the Christ. And the second part, he's the son of the living God. What does that mean? Well, in Scripture, again, if we look at the Old Testament, there are a couple of different ways that the Son of God is used. You know, if, if we look at, uh, again, Psalms, the Son of God is used many times just to refer to people. A Son of God is also used to refer to angels. And it's pretty obvious, though, that Peter isn't using it that way because he doesn't say, you are a Son of God. He says, you are the Son of God. He's claiming that Jesus is divine. And this isn't the first time. And, you know, this saying is attributed to Peter, but we actually see it before if we go back to right after Jesus was walking on the water and he got into the boat. This is chapter 14, verse 33. He's gotten into the boat. The winds cease. The waves quiet. And it says, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Which means all of the disciples, all of the disciples were in that boat, and all of the disciples were calling him the Son of God, and it meant that he was divine because they were actually worshipping him. He's the Savior. He is the true Son of God. He is the one 
who is coming to deal with sin. And He's also the one who is the only one who is able to deal with sin. And that's all compacted in that one profession of faith. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. He is both Savior and Lord. So how is it that they believe this while everybody else was confused? Why did the disciples have such a different answer than the other people? Well, Jesus answers that here in verse 17. He says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. They believed because it was revealed to them by the Father. It was a work of the Father in them, bringing them to faith. And that's the same way it plays out now. The same way that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior in Christ. It's because God has revealed that to us. And the reason why other people don't, that's because He hasn't revealed it to them. So, we've seen what the crowds say, you know, who Jesus is. We've seen who the disciples say who Jesus is, but who does Jesus say that he is here? Let's start again in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. So, who does Jesus say that he is here? Well, first off, he agrees with Peter. He says that Peter is right, that when Peter calls him Christ, the Savior of the world, that that is right, that that is who Jesus is. That's part of His identity. That He is the Son of God, that He is divine, that He is actually able to complete the mission and able to deal with sin. And He is the Lord, and that is who He is. He is the promised Savior to come. And He's come to bring salvation to the world. And that flows into the next way that He actually says who He is. The next way he says who he is, he says that he is the one who will build the church. The church is built by Jesus. What does he mean? You know, the word for church here in Greek is ekklesia. And okay, you probably heard, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard that ekklesia means the called out ones. And it does. It does. But that probably isn't the only sense that it's being used here. Because Jesus didn't actually invent this term. No, this term had been used for a long time. It goes beyond just its, its simple etymological meaning of the called out ones. Whenever we look at the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they come to this word kahal. And the word kahal in Hebrew means congregation or assembly. It can also mean place of worship. 
And kahal is always translated into Greek in one of two words. Either synagogues, the place of worship, or ekklesia, the assembly of God. And Jesus is going right back here to that concept of the assembly of God worshiping the Lord. And he's saying that his church, that ecclesia that he is building, is that assembly of God. And we see because of that, because of simple things like the fact that he chose 12 disciples and there were 12 tribes of Israel, that he is assembling for himself symbolically this people of God. It's evident that he is building that assembly and it's connected with the old assembly. It's not a separate thing. The church and Israel of the Old Testament are not two things. They are one thing. One thing. One assembly of God's people worshiping God. And how does he say he'll build it? We look at verse 18 and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church. So, so there's some wordplay here that's happening that kind of confuses people. You know, the Catholics say that, you know, when Jesus says this, he's actually instituting Peter as the first pope, and he's specifically saying that Peter is the one who's going to build the church, and through him, everybody that succeeds him as pope. And there's good reasons not to buy into that. Um, I probably won't go into them here. But if you're curious, email me, talk to me afterward. We can discuss it. There are some very good reasons. Other people think that he actually means Peter's confession. That it's his confession that is the rock on the church which is <clears throat> on which the church is built. Now, if you look at all of the Reformed commentators, Knox Chamberlain, Dan Doriani, Michael Green, if you look at all these people, even Calvin, they'll say, no, he actually does mean Peter. And he means the confession. Because there's this near fulfillment that happens, and then there's this persistent fulfillment that happens. And so the near fulfillment, if we look at like the book of Acts, after Jesus has raised and he's ascended into heaven, who is it that actually is the spokesperson of the disciples? Who is it that preaches the first sermon that converts 3,000 people? It's Peter. It's Peter. But how does he do it? By confessing this same truth that he confessed here. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That He is the Savior of the world and the Lord of everything. That is how the church is built through Peter. And because of his confession, it's built on his confession as well. It's interesting little wordplay that goes on that draws us to that attention. It doesn't come through in English, but Peter is Petros. And rock is Petra. They derive from the same word. In the gospel, as the gospel is proclaimed, the church is built, and it's built with living stones, raised up to be a temple for the living God. Third, he'll guard his church. We see this in verse 19. 
And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know, there's this big question, again, in theological circles, and probably in your minds, what, is, what are the keys of heaven that he's talking about? Well, we actually get a clue if we look a little bit forward into Matthew chapter 18. He talks about the keys of heaven again, and Jesus, when he talks about them, it's, it's in the sense that people have gone into sin. They've sinned against their brother. And so, what should you do if your brother sins against you? You should go to them. And you should talk to them. And if they don't listen, then you should take a few elders and go to them and talk to them. And if they don't listen, you should bring them before the entire church. And if they still persist in their sin, Jesus says that you are to use the, kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that you can exclude them from the church. And so the keys of the kingdom of heaven here are <clears throat> this authority to declare who is in the kingdom and who is out. Now, again, that sounds weird, particularly when we think about uh, God's sovereignty. You know, how is it that the church actually declares this? Because really it's God that declares it. And of course, this has been perverted by many churches throughout the centuries, Catholic Church being one of them, where they say that they can do an excommunication and you're completely cut off, never to be restored unless they restore you. Or they can do, even in historically, they've done interdictions where entire countries are excommunicated because they have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, though, when you look at the Greek of this because we translate this as whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. But the Greek is actually a lot more complicated than that. We clean it up a lot in English because, you know, if we were to do a literal translation, it's just super cumbersome. But the literal translation of the Greek there is whatever you bind on earth shall be having loosed in heaven. Now, what does that mean? That means that whatever the church decides at this point is actually a ratification of something that is already true in heaven. The church isn't deciding something. They are ratifying a decision that is already made. They are realizing something that is already true. And that's an awesome thing as we look about Jesus guarding the church because one, he guards the church from within. He guards the church from heresy. He guards the church from sin. He also guards the church from ourselves. Because if we are ratifying as a church something that's already true in heaven, then we can't mess it up. Our actions are going to reflect what is true as long as we are part of a true church. Fourth, he will lead his church. This is the fourth part of who he says he is, that he is the church's head. He is the leader. We see this in verse 18. The second half of it says, On this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, we often read this, and I, I'm 
guilty of this too. We read this as saying that the forces of hell are going to assault us and assault us and, and assault us, and yet we will always prevail. That's how it's typically read. But there is a problem with that, and that, the, that is not the image at all that's shown forth here. No, this is not an image of defense. This is not an image of, though we can actually make a scriptural argument for this, of us in the fortress of God withstanding the onslaught. No, the image is one of attack. The image is one of charging forth and assaulting the gates of hell. That's the image. That Jesus is our battle leader. He is our general. He's the one that leads us into battle. And he is the one that empowers the church as they go forth to do battle with the gates of hell. And this this image pairs well with one of the other one of the other ways that we see ecclesia okay like i said ecclesia you know this went back all the way to the septuagint and was translated from the, the hebrew but there was a different use for it the greeks actually coined the use of ecclesia and do you know what ecclesia was ecclesia was their gathering it's how they ruled particular towns and so when Alexander the Great went out and he conquered everything, basically, that was known at the time, one of the ways that they would actually set up their rule was to establish in each little province an ecclesia. And that ecclesia were Greek citizens. And they were to rule the town. And they were to teach the conquered people what it meant to be Greek. And when the Romans came in, they actually didn't want to be uh, this, <clears throat> they don't, didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And so a lot of these ecclesias that were around, they just kept them around. And they patterned some of their behavior off of what the Greeks did. And so when they conquered people, they would also set up ecclesias. And those were the called out ones. The Roman citizens, the Roman citizens that were <clears throat> ruling the town and teaching people how to be Romans. But Jesus turns it on its head here because remember the backdrop that we had. The backdrop that we had was Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi that was filled with pagan temples. And the chief pagan temple that it was filled with was one to worship Caesar Augustus. And he's saying, no, my ecclesia is going to be set up. The gates of hell will not prevail against my ecclesia. My church will prevail. It will triumph. He's envisioning the church as this conquering army. And that image goes forth when he gives the great commission to go to all nations and baptize and make disciples. That the church is spreading out. They are bringing, as the body of Christ, they are bringing Christ's rule over the earth. They are his assaulting army. 
Now, the question that we arrive at now is, again, Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And in kind of the classic formulation, you're, you're faced with a choice. You can either think of him as a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. C.S. Lewis has this very famous passage in Mere Christianity, and he says this very eloquently, much more eloquently than I would, and so I'm just going to read his words here. He says, regarding whether or not Jesus is a moral, good moral teacher, or whether Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me the obvious thing that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however, strange and terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Yeah. Who do you say that I am? Do you hear Jesus saying that to you? I hope you do. I hope you do. Because <clears throat> it's the most important question that you'll ever answer. But if you have the answer to it, if you can actually echo Peter's profession of faith here that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Savior, and that He is the Son of the living God, that He is the Lord, in that profession there is power, such vast power. And it's not power <clears throat> that you have. It's power that Christ's work through you. It is that power that has taken this ragtag group of disciples and within a few days back at Pentecost built it from a hundred people to 5,000 to 10,000. All the way down through history until now there's 2.6 billion people on the face of the planet that claim to be Christian. That's the power of the profession. It changes lives. It awakens hearts. And you have the opportunity now to enter into that. You have the opportunity to see you and the church as how Jesus sees you as a warrior, as somebody on the battlefield, as somebody who is assaulting the gates of hell 
and bringing his rule upon the earth. And not through your own power. Only through his. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we, we thank you for this glorious truth that you've given us in our passage today that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That in him all of our sins are atoned for because he has taken them upon himself. He has taken the curse that was on us. And he has delivered us from that. And in the place of our sin, Lord, he has given us his righteousness. And he's able to do that because he is the Lord of the universe. Thank you so much for this truth. Lord, we do ask that you drill this down into our hearts so that we never forget it, not even for a moment, so that we never overlook it. But let us realize every day, at all times, that we are Jesus, that he is our Lord, he is our Savior. And he is the conqueror. Amen.